The consistory has encouraged one final sermon in this series on vocation, particularly aimed toward young people and helping young people figure out what it is that God is calling them to do and how to live it well, though hopefully and especially here in this uh, message we'll see application for all workers. This sermon will focus on what we should do when we wonder if we should continue in our work. And we return to the text that we began this series with, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, where Paul wrestles with two uh, uh, potentially competing principles. His main point is, as a Christian, you stay where God has called you. You take uh, your changed life and apply it to the work that other people have also and what God has called you into and you do that work, whatever it might be to God's glory. But he also says there are times when you should change what you're doing. It may be uh, best for you to stop doing especially degrading work, work that doesn't, that, uh, doesn't honor the Lord as best as your work could. And so we'll try to wrestle with these principles. I'll explain more in just a moment. Let, let's listen to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, and on uh, to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Amen. As we've heard throughout this series, work is meant to be rewarding. It isn't the sum of our lives, but it is good for us to enjoy what we do. So what happens when we don't enjoy what we do? What do we do when work doesn't work? Now, our impulse might be to quit. Work doesn't work. I don't like my job. I don't like the people I'm with. It's hard. Whatever it may be, I'm going to quit. But usually we shouldn't. Let's start with that uh, uh, commitment. Sometimes we can't quit. Need often trumps want. Hard jobs might not be your destiny, but reality sometimes requires painful perseverance. This is especially important uh, to say to uh, people who have been encouraged to just quit and try something different if you don't like what you're doing. Perhaps we should also uh, be hopeful that with faithfulness, your work situation will improve. Some of the guidance that we've considered can resolve moderate workplace unhappiness. We should develop vocational gratitude, be thankful for 
what we have, practice diligence, be content even in humble circumstances, expect God to provide an increase for our labors. We should keep developing skills that will make us more useful and better compensated and appreciated. We should recognize that workplace unhappiness is normal. We shouldn't react to it with foolish impulsivity. But sometimes what we do seems irredeemable. We wonder if we can press on. And that can happen in numerous ways, but we want to explore two extreme assessments that are sadly common And those assessments are these. I hate my job, first of all, and I wonder if my job is compromised by sin. I hate my job and I wonder if my job, or second, I wonder if my job is compromised by sin. Focusing on these extreme assessments in the hopes that they will provide application even in more uh, uh, jobs with more ordinary concerns. But let's go to the extreme. What if I hate my job? What do I do? How do I live vocationally when what I do, I hate doing? Let's consider that. Now, in considering that, we need to recognize that some people hate their jobs for the wrong reasons or hate their jobs wrongly, inappropriately. They hate their jobs because uh, what they really mean is my job is hard. My job is not fully satisfying. My uh, job uh, doesn't give me enough hours or too many hours or I don't like the people I work with. Or, and we could go on and on with superficial uh, reasons that might cause someone to say, I hate my job. It may be, though, that resentment generated by hard but necessary work is most often merely ingratitude. Inability, as one person has written, to accept a lowly place at the beginning. Your job near the beginning of your life, working life, will be ordinarily unpleasant, unrewarding. Uh, All the things that people don't like, they don't like them, and that's why you're doing them, because they've graduated on, they moved on. Your early jobs are going to be hard and often unrewarding rewarding. It may be that you hate your job because of arrogance. I deserve better or lack of discipline. I haven't learned to persevere through hard things. Vocational frustration may also stem from poor assumptions about work, what work is able to offer or jealousy. I see other people my age with a better job and therefore I hate my job. And so if we hate our work, I say this especially to young people, we may need to adjust our expectations. To put it this way, on this side of glory, work must disappoint. It's true for you. It's also true for your parents and your grandparents if they're still working but have graduated to better uh, levels of respect or whatever it might be. Their work still disappoints them, this side of glory. Stephen Garber put it like this, whatever our vocation." It always means making peace with the proximate, with something rather than nothing. We're making peace with that. We're saying, Lord, you've given me something. It's it's not nothing. 
And that's true, he says, in marriage and in family, at work and at worship, at home and in the public square. Make peace with the proximate. Make peace with the good. Be thankful for what you have. And Garber says, that is not a cold-hearted calculus. Rather, it is a choice to live by hope, even when hope is hard. Os Guinness put it more simply, saying this, to find work now that perfectly fits our callings is not a right, but a blessing. It's not a right. You do not have a right, young person, to find a job that's perfect for you, especially right away. It's a blessing if you do, and some people do. But uh, temper that expectation. Think about this. Even the Apostle Paul maintained, I think, what we could call a less-than-ideal side job to support his primary calling as a gospel minister. He had a burning desire to preach the gospel. That's all he wanted to do. And yet he spent a lot of his time, apparently, in the leather trade, a noble trade, but not exactly what he wanted to do. He said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And yet he spent a lot of his time doing that hard work. And he's thankful for it. But it wasn't exactly what he wanted to do. And even though Paul's main work, his gospel ministry, truly fit his calling, it too was extremely hard. Have you noticed a few times in the New Testament, Paul talked about his job like it almost killed him? And it did. That's, that's life. That's work. That's living out your calling. He talks about how many times he was shipwrecked. Who can talk about how many times they were shipwrecked? I mean, isn't once a story? But multiple times he's shipwrecked, beaten with rods in prison. That's his calling. That's the thing he wanted to do, but it was hard. And then he died from it. Too many people, all of us probably at times, expect too much from their work. God-honoring vocational living, though, is far different from fulfilling our childhood dreams. Our jobs aren't meant to meet all our needs all our desires, all our passions. Only God can do that. You don't have to completely love your job. I know I've said that a few times in this series, but it's something to keep repeating. Deriving happiness from what we do is not our main purpose. If you can get some happiness from what you do, that's wonderful, but that's not your main purpose. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. That's our main goal, not to get the most satisfying job possible. We must come to work then knowing who we are in Christ and looking to him to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory, not to look to our jobs to give us everything that we desire. And yet we can uh, combat workplace dissatisfaction. So what I'm, uh, well, I'm starting out by saying that some of our dissatisfaction is misplaced. We're expecting too much. We're looking for uh, satisfaction in the wrong place. And yet there are things we can do to gain uh, job place, uh, workplace satisfaction if we say we dislike our work. Here are, here are three ways that we may be able to combat workplace dissatisfaction. Uh, first of all, be conscientious. In other words, be committed to doing your duty no matter what. Be conscientious. 
doesn't matter what the job is. Your first or second or third job might not be a career for you. It might be a launching pad for better work. I hope it is. But it is still important. It's where you can learn faithfulness in small things. Be conscientious in what you do. Committed to doing your duty no matter what. I had the privilege of teaching some of uh, what God's word says about vocation recently to the inmates at the Indiana State Prison. And doing so confirmed for me the need to prioritize vocational faithfulness over compatibility. These are inmates earning 8 to 15 cents an hour uh, in their prison jobs, doing things that they surely don't love to do. But these are Christian men who are trying to honor God in their work. None of the inmates, I can assure you, were living out their childhood dreams in their vocation in prison. They had limited work opportunities and little hope of what we might consider advancement. Before incarceration, one man that I talked with was a successful demolition technician in the military. I assure you, there is no suitable application for that in prison, a a, a demolition technician. They do not give TNT to uh, inmates. And so he, he said to me, this is what I did. I was a demolition tech in the military. And he wisely said, if that job defined me, and if that's what I was looking for, for satisfaction, then I can't have it anymore because I can't have that job. Vocation is about being faithful where God has placed you, whether that's in prison or a job that feels like prison sometimes. You're faithful in where God has placed you, and you do the next right thing, the next right thing, and then the next right thing, and you keep being faithful. You You be conscientious in your work. This is what Jesus did in his difficult unglamorous calling as a carpenter. I say unglamorous, not at all to diminish it, but some uh, people in his day did. They, in referring to Jesus, they said, oh, isn't that the carpenter? We know him, that ordinary fellow. He's not uh, like us. He's not, doesn't have a, uh, he doesn't have the right degree and so on. But that's what Jesus did. And, and reflect on this. When Jesus was doing his carpentry work, It was that also about which he says in the book of Hebrews, I have come, O God, to do your will. It wasn't just when he became a priest at age 30. He came to do God's will by strapping on his tool belt and chiseling stone or fastening metal or whatever it was, building with wood. He was doing the will of God in a way that was excellent, in a way that pleased the Father. And you know that he could have, instead of becoming a carpenter, he could have taken your job instead. There's no reason Jesus had to be a carpenter that I can discern. He could have become a dispatcher or a parts manager or whatever it is that you do, and he could have done it uh, with excellence. Even after being publicly recognized as the Messiah, Jesus continued to do dirty work touching lepers, feeding the hungry, washing feet. And so can you. Faithfulness isn't flashy. It's not always going to grab attention. It is, as Eugene Peterson wrote, uh, speaking of faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction. 
Just be long in your obedience. Keep pointing yourself in the right direction and keep being faithful. Obedience doesn't require satisfaction, though it often leads to satisfaction. If you're in a hard job, a job that you dislike, you're not sure if you can do it, be conscientious. Keep doing the right thing no matter what in your work. Second, be content. Contentment with one's situation and a determination to work faithfully and vigorously in it is the basic biblical stance. Be content. Be thankful for what you have. And the good news is that contentment can be learned. Paul says in, in Philippians 4, I've learned in all things to be content. You can learn in your work or lack of work or in your underemployed situation to be content. You can look for ways to rejoice in your work even as God rejoices in his, as Psalm 104 says. Contentment often comes through thankfully accepting divine providence. Think about it this way. For right now, and for good reasons, God has given you the job you have. For right now, and for good reasons, God has given you the job you have. This is God saying, my son, my daughter, here is the work that I want you to do. And this is a critical realization to wake up in the morning or in the evening when you go to work and say, I'm going to the job that God has given to me. It's critical for this reason, as Calvin writes, everyone will bear and swallow the discomforts, vexations, weariness, as, and anxieties in his way of life when he has been persuaded that the burden was laid upon him by God. Calvin understood the hardship of work, didn't he? He labored uh, too hard, probably, and spent too many hours at his standing desk with kidney stones and all the rest of the problems that he had. He underate and underslept and all. But he knew, that, he knew the difficulties of work, even as an academic and as a pastor. But he said, if you know that God has laid this upon you, you will take up your calling more faithfully. Puritan John Flavel put it this way, there is more obedience to submit to God in a low calling than to submit to him in a higher calling. Take that as an encouragement. If you're in a low calling, you know, uh, if that's how society might view your calling. Flavel says there's more obedience to submitting to God in a low calling. It's easier to submit to God in a high calling. I submit to God uh, to be the CEO of this corporation. Well, yeah, that's hard too. But there's a glory in that. There's prestige and there's wealth and there's, but submitting to God in a low calling, he says, that's, that's more obedience. Be conscientious, be content. And then third, be creative. Be creative. A believer ought to seek real, if modest, satisfaction in his work and attempt in the course of his employment to discover and implement ways in which his work can be more rewarding, enjoyable, and useful for himself and others. That's the advice of one uh, uh, British pastor. Uh, you have the job that you have. It has certain parameters that you can't budge, perhaps, but there's much within those parameters that you have some say over. So try to find satisfaction within, in the work that you do. After all, most people find that uh, 
the, the satisfaction that you can gain from doing the work in the, in the right way, in ways that are, are better pleasing to others, is, is actually more rewarding than your pay scale or your approval or advancement or whatever. Um, if, if you're frustrated at work, you might practice the discipline uh, that has come to be known as job crafting. Job crafting. I won't go into detail here, and I won't give examples of what this might look like because every example will be so different in a different field. But I'll give you a sense of what this looks like. Job crafting or customizing your work in responsible ways. Uh, There's a few ways that this works. First, most jobs allow some flexibility for workers to alter the type, the scope, the sequence, and the number of tasks one performs at work. Now, that's not always the case. If you are on an assembly line, you probably just have to pull that lever uh, so many times an hour or whatever. But but most of our jobs allow some freedom for the sequence in which we do things or the... uh, the... Uh, the number of tasks and, 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 and the order in which we perform them and so on. So there's some flexibility there, perhaps. Second, you can also often change how and with which people you interact at work. Now, that's also not um, always entirely possible, but you have some flexibility there. You can craft your job by uh, saying, maybe, maybe I can't change the person I spend the most amount of time with at work, but I can change how I interact with them. I can change the kind of things or I can help to change the kind of things we talk about on our shift. I can take some responsibility for that. I'm not chained to this person and his or her way of thinking in my work. And then third, you can modify the way that you interpret the work you are doing. Uh, maybe society says you just, you just punch out cogs on a machine. But you say, no, I'm building parts to advance this field or this industry. And this is how Christians around the world may use these things. We've supported for years uh, a ministry that sent medical supplies around the world for Christians to use in hospitals. And you could say, well, I'm doing more than just building instruments. I'm helping missionaries to serve in their their, uh, calling and so on. So explore what that might look like in your field. Look up uh, that concept of job crafting. You might also find ways to do what you love or feel called to outside of your working hours. You might say, well, my creativity is fairly limited here from nine to five, but I can do some of the things I love outside. All this to say, and I need to stop here on that, but most work can be improved by how you do it, by your contentment in it, and by the creativity that you implement in it. But some work, I need to get to this, is truly worthy of hatred. Some people say, I hate my job, and they're right to say it. If your work is destroying your soul, you should ask hard questions which may lead you to leave for another position. There are times to make drastic improvement in your vocation. Paul's parenthetical comment to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 21 makes this point. He says this, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So it's interesting. He says, he says, you can do, Christian, you can do almost any job as a believer. You don't have to change where you work and you can work faithfully to God's glory. But slave, if you have a chance to gain your freedom, you, you should avail yourself of that. Why does, does Paul say that? Because, as Calvin says in commenting on this text, liberty is not merely good, 
but is also more advantageous than servitude. It is not best for you to be a slave. It is for some the lot, for many in the Roman era, in the day in which Paul was writing, but it is not best. Slaves can honor God, but if one can please God in a calling that better reflects their design and in which they have greater control over their gifts, they not only may make a change, but should. Dorothy Sayers put it this way, we should clamor to be engaged in work that is worth doing and in which we can take pride in an appropriate way of thinking of of pride. And so um, some work is truly worthy of hatred and you should not do it if you have an alternative, if you have an option. Don't keep doing things that are crushing your soul. Uh, uh, Covenant Seminary professor offers from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this simple formula for uh, about staying or leaving a job. I'll use the three words, then I'll uh, put them in a sentence as he does. Um, here's the formula. Stay, this is, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, unless, because. So stay, unless, because. Here's what he means. We stay Wherever we work, that is, we have an impulse to persevere, to not be quitters at the first opportunity. It's hard. I don't get paid enough. I don't get to hang out with my friends as much as I should. We stay wherever we work unless we can move to a better position in our social structure or improve the social structure itself because God's people are responsible for themselves and for the wider world. You're responsible to be the best that you can be, which will be different than the best that the person sitting next to you can be. And that's perfect. That's how it should be. But don't continue to do what you hate, but be sure that God would would agree with your assessment that you hate your job. Don't use the word hate in a less uh, extreme way than God means that word to be used. But if you do, rightly hate your work, find something else. So that's the first question we want to consider. We'll go more briskly through the second. Is my vocation compromised by sin? That's a real question in today's, in, 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 any, in any job, in any era. Christians can have serious doubts about whether their work is appropriate for believers. Maybe you've asked that question about either your current work or potential work that you've considered. One friend wondered if she should continue serving on an advisory board that sometimes supports causes that she can't endorse. People consider joining, uh, considering joining the armed forces might ponder how they can follow orders that seem contrary to biblical ethics. You may ask it this way. Can I work for a company that actively promotes an LGBTQ plus agenda? It's not my, I'm not promoting it, but my job does. Can I work for such an employer? Can I stock shelves with harmless, uh, with harmful products? What if the boss tells me to do something that I think is wrong, but says you're just following orders? Scripture can help us answer these complex questions. So let's begin with that, with that stay impulse. Even if we have the question, what if, what if I'm not, you know, is my work compromised by sin? There may be good reasons to stay in questionable work that matches your skill, meets your desires, and ministers to others. There, there may be good reasons. We'll work this out, but let's start there. We have to remember, first of all, that our work is how we serve our neighbor 
not how we earn salvation. Now, don't, I'm going to qualify this in just a moment, but Luther's argument about morally complicated work was this. Christians can fulfill a vocation guilt-free because the Christian is no longer in an ethical orientation toward God. Now, when he says we're no longer in an ethical orientation toward God, he doesn't mean that we have no longer responsibilities toward him. He means that we are no longer in a covenant of works toward God. And so we don't have to be paralyzed by fear at the thought of coming up short despite our best attentions. So here's this potentially complicated morally complicated job, and I don't know if it's right, and because I don't know if it's right, I need to quit, because what if I do the wrong thing, and God no longer loves me, because my work doesn't satisfy him? That's imagining that you are in a covenant of works relationship with God. The reality is, you will fail at your work. It doesn't matter what kind of work you take. Only the self-deceived think that they can do meaningful work without sinning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, John, uh, 1 John 1, 8. But as sinners, even in our vocations, we claim the powerful cleansing blood of Christ. Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin and delivers us from allowing the fear of failure to keep us from living boldly. Now, this is not antinomianism. This is not uh, excusing sin since grace will abound. We may never in our vocations sin deliberately. But the reality is that gracious justification can be a huge help in matters of conscience that are hard for us to clear up. And we'll get to in a moment, there are some that are not hard to clear up. You should quit this job. It's compromised. It is not honoring to the Lord. But as we're deliberating these questions, there are reasons to stay, perhaps, in a potentially compromised position. Because you know that even if you unwillfully make the wrong decision, living out your vocation, you can have no doubt that God will cover all your sin and accept you as his beloved child. And that's important in a, in a, frankly, let's be honest, a compromised world. So there may be a reason to stay. You begin by saying, I do not relate to God in, in an ethical sense in terms of being in a covenant of works with the Lord. Second, it's worth pondering that God set up our vocations in a messy world. Vocation today assumes imperfection. And so you say, well, I don't know if I can do my job as a Christian. I have to make imperfect choices and I have to participate in things that are not ideal. Yes, you live in the world. You do have to make those hard. Those, those, those parts, that part of your work is hard. So there is, as uh, Paul Helm put it, a certain sort of flexibility that is both inevitable and acceptable to the Christian. Now, there's a there's a uh, there's an inflexibility that's also required, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But there's a sort of flexibility that is both inevitable and acceptable to the Christian when it comes to work. It is inevitable because we live in a society. We live in a society. No man is an island, able to cultivate a vocation free from the world's brokenness. 
Believers must, of course, have high moral expectations of themselves and of other believers, but piety does not require us to forsake the institutions of the world. Paul says, I'm talking, when he talks about a high moral standard, he's talking, he said, I'm talking about you in the church. If you were to impose that same standard on the world, you'd have to leave the world. We must work in the world even while striving to influence it with kingdom principles. But you're working in the world in complicated situations in a messy world. Often then we must choose between two defective options. This is not the same as deliberately charting a course to sin. But it is saying, I work in a world. And the the questions that I have to answer are complicated. Participation in flawed vocational context is also acceptable to a point because we are not responsible for the choices of others with whom we work, for whom we work, how they may use our labor, how they may implement our products. Paul Helm makes this clear, or helps at least to make this clear, Uh, I'll read an extended quotation that I found very helpful. He says, The fact that a Christian lives in a community of people limits his responsibility, even though the exact boundaries of that responsibility are sometimes hard to discern. If you did not live in a society, if you were the only person, the boundaries of your responsibility would be very well defined. It would include everything that you touched, everything that you did. It would be all on you. But you live in a society. He says this, though, but think of what the world would be like if responsibility were not limited. In other words, if we had this view that even though I live in a society, I'm responsible ultimately for everything that I touch or everything that I do, all the choices that I make. He says, imagine this, the postman would have to open all the mail to see whether or not he approved of what he was carrying. I can't be responsible for delivering this letter. It's naughty or it's mean or whatever. The taxi driver would have to cross-examine his fares. Where are you going? What are you up to? It would be impossible to work for a firm whose products might be used in the course of sin or to buy goods from people who might use the profits they make in ways that are sinful. And you could go on and on and make an uh, an impossible vocational situation. The fact that other people are responsible means that one person cannot be totally responsible for all the actual consequences of an action which he has performed. The Christian is called to do the best he can in the total situation of which he forms a part. You form a part of the total situation, and you do the best that you can in that total situation. You take responsibility for yourself. You do not assume responsibility for everyone else. And it is possible, of course, to promote godliness from within ungodly organizations. Is it ideal? No. But a few biblical examples. We could say, I think, quite uh, without... uh, second-guessing that the Roman tax collection complex was systemically crooked. Systemically crooked. But Christians, as we heard in a previous sermon, could honor God by resisting the trade's inherent temptations. 
Roman soldiers in the same chapter, Luke 3, were notorious for extorting money by threats and false accusations. You could say that's a corrupt system. Yep, it was a corrupt system. They were notorious for it. But that didn't restrict the calling to unbelievers. John the Baptist didn't say you have to remove yourself from that. Believers may remain in compromised or even corrupt organizations if they can mitigate evil there and if they are not required to sin. Maybe that would be the simplest way to break it down. If you're not required to sin and if you have the opportunity to mitigate evil, you persist in that if the Lord has called you to it according to your conscience. But of course, there are limits to Christian participation. So all of that to say, we're we're starting with that stay impulse. Stay if you can. Don't be scared by the, the potential dangers of a difficult calling. But there are limits to Christian participation. Perhaps we could start here with Paul in Romans 14, verse 23. He says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. At least part of what he means is that you cannot actively violate your beliefs. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't do what you do in good faith, then your conscience is is saying you need to do something different. William Perkins, English Puritan, relates this dilemma to the two callings of a Christian. Remember, every Christian has two callings, his general calling as a believer and his particular calling in whatever field he may be in. Uh, Perkins says this, the particular calling of any man, his job, is inferior to the general calling of a Christian. And when they cannot both stand together, he says often they can both stand together. You can be a Christian and a whatever uh, job that you might have. But when they cannot both stand together, the particular calling must give place. You cannot sacrifice your general calling to be a Christian, to live and act according to, uh, to, to think and act according to the faith that God has revealed in his word and say, well, it's my job after all, just, just doing what, I, what, I, what my job says I have to do. To truly work unto the Lord as Colossians 3.23 demands, means believing that even genuine human authority is never absolute. This job's authority is never absolute. My boss's authority is never absolute because I work unto the Lord. Uh, Puritan John Flavel said this, do not be so intent upon your particular callings Have you ever seen a man or a woman so intent on their particular calling? They're going to make it in this field. They're going to live that dream. They're going to do what they want to do. He says, do not be so intent upon your particular callings as to make them interfere with your general calling to be a Christian. Beware that you do not lose your God in the crowd and in the hurry of earthly business. You could lose your God if you're focusing on your job. Now, of course, sometimes the decision is clear Right, uh, The apostles say in Acts 5, 20, 29, uh, we must obey God rather than men. And in that instance, it was obvious. There was no deliberation. I cannot do this. I obey God. Fire me if you have to, but I'm going to do what God says. But even in less obvious matters, your conscience 
has a primary claim on your actions, as one popular conservative psychologist from Toronto writes. Your conscience has a primary claim on your action, which supersedes your conventional social duty. So you have a, something that's expected of you, that's conventional. This is what a person in your job does. Your conscience has a primary claim on your action. The writer uh, says that, uh, or gives guidance for when work becomes unworthy of you as a Christian. For example, when it violates the fact of divine image bearing in yourself or in those your work affects. We're told to use terms like this that uh, clearly Ezekiel did not use in uh, Ephesians 16, which we read this morning. He, uh, we're told that we should use the term sex worker today uh, for people like prostitutes or others because it's a job after all and it dignifies them to use that term. No, that is not a vocation because it violates the fact of divine image bearing in yourself. And so don't make a different title to sound more acceptable for something that's totally unacceptable. It is wor uh, work that is unworthy of you is that which demonstrably is counterproductive. You were not meant to be counterproductive day in and day out. Absurd or pointless. Unacceptable work requires us to treat others unjustly and to lie about it, to engage in deceit, to betray your future self, to put up with unnecessary torture and abuse, and to silently watch others suffer the same treatment. Some work demands habitual denial of the principles of the Sabbath and are therefore inhumane. When the social surround has become pathological, incomplete, archaic, willfully blind, or corrupt, Christians must be willing to say, this is no longer a place for a committed follower of Christ. I think those situations are extreme, but maybe are going to become less and less extreme and less and less uncommon. But you start with that stay unless because you have good reason to move on, whether it's because you hate your job or because you're wondering if this is appropriate work for you as a Christian. Let me close with this thought. Hard, humbling work that lacks patent value is not a sure sign that you should quit. It's going to be hard. It's going to be humbling. It is not always going to have obvious value in the moment, immediately. In fact, we could say such was the work of Christ. Hard, humbling, lacking immediate, obvious value. But through the gift of grace, Jesus gives us all we need to be faithful even when our work doesn't seem to work. And he's been there. He sympathizes with us in our vocational challenges as well. Our Lord will give us wisdom and courage, sometimes to persevere, sometimes to say, no, I cannot persevere in this. It would be wrong to do so, and I face the consequences. Believe this in all of your vocational endeavors, that his grace is sufficient even when and in whatever way our work seems unworkable. His grace 
is sufficient. Amen. Let's pray together, asking for the Lord's help in this. Lord, we thank you for coming into this world to do hard work, manual work, sweaty work, unappreciated work, as both a carpenter and as a preacher and as a pastor, as a priest, as a king. We thank you for showing us perseverance, for setting your face like flint and going to the cross, marching to Jerusalem resolutely. We pray that you would help us in our hard callings or in those moments of our, uh, of our callings which are hard and which we feel like quitting. We're not getting the recognition or the appreciation or people don't understand us or whatever it might be. Help us to press on. Give us wisdom also to know when to say, this I cannot do. We pray that we would be disciplined, conscientious people. Help us to be hardworking people who learn, strive to learn, to love as much as we can what we do that honors you and to work as unto the Lord and not unto men. Bless us in our work. Bless us in our home life and all that we undertake, Lord. Help us to work as image bearers of you. In Jesus' name.